This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. Hopefully, your favorite Chelsea podcast in whatever universe you're inhabiting today. Dan, one of your hosts here, no Nick or Brandon, but that's because it's a preview episode looking ahead after Chelsea were victorious over media darling Tottenham Hotspur on Monday this week. Chelsea now have to face Man City, who just continue to win, continue to be the favorites on and off the pitch for another league title to advance deep into the Champions League. Chelsea not involved in one of those competitions this year and might have even been said that they weren't really involved in the other one up until this past result. But as we get into this episode, taking a look at what City's performance had looked like, injury concerns, how they've been playing the season, if Pep Guardiola has made another change or multiple changes, what questions Poch has to solve, and maybe some predictions in terms of lineup and score. I'm joined, as always, by Sam as we get into these preview pods. And Sam, I think you you talked that this is essentially a meme game for us, that there's a meme to define how you're feeling heading into this conversation we're about to have today. Yeah, it's basically that big man thing, yeah? It's not looking good, Bref. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, my God, yeah. We, we tend to get very nervous, understandably so, before playing, um, you know, arguably, in my in my opinion, in my humble opinion, uh, the best manager the game's seen. So, um, it's, yeah, for me personally, it's just, what is he going to do? What are we going to come up against? You know, you sometimes end up getting a 6-0 six, six um, that, that we went through, which was traumatic. And then you end up getting something like a 1-0 where Gundogan ends up breaking like the past record in the Premier League. So it's, it's yeah, it, it's traumatic every every single time. So I'm just hoping that we're able to compete. Luckily, Poch tends to have a good ma- uh, sort of managerial record against Pep's team. So mm. fingers crossed, hope for the best and plan for the worst. Well, we hope that Poch will, you know in addition to bringing aura, in addition to bringing a result against his former team, hopefully he brings his history or record against Man City into Chelsea as a part of our DNA. It'd be a good bit of transfer or gene transfer there if that were to be the case. But again, before we get into this episode, particularly looking at City first, we just want to say thank you to everybody who helps support the podcast. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Great way to help people find the show. We super appreciate that. You can also head over to YouTube, subscribe. We are getting eerily close to 30,000 subscribers over there. You hit the bell icon to get notified too when we drop a new episode there as well. It doesn't cost you anything to do that, and we greatly appreciate it. Highly recommended. And then you can also go to Patreon or Discord to join our wonderful community. Uh, Discord is the new hotness. Great way to subscribe over there. It does cost a couple bucks, but you know, we think it's worth it. And so we recommend that too. Great way to support the podcast as well. But that's going to do it for the pitch on how you can help support the podcast because we're going to dive right in to City's recent performances, their current form, how they've been playing. And in general, maybe out of sight of one or two fluky results, the 2-1 loss to Wolves, the 1-0 loss to City, it's just been a machine. The machine of Manchester City continues to churn out results, to churn out victories, and it is almost automatic. Set your clock, set your watch. I don't know what else to say, Sam. I mean, it, 
you know, some people might say it gets boring, but I, I don't know if I were a city supporter, winning is never boring to me, <laughs> regardless of how it happens. And so it just seems that they continue to be in fine form. They are maybe some questions, maybe some changes, maybe some turnover, maybe some recent injuries to take into consideration, but they just seem to be impervious to any issues, problems, errors, adjustments. They're just, they do what they do. Yeah, I think inertia plays a, a vital role in Manchester City at this point because with the momentum they've had over the past couple of seasons, you bring in new players, they seem to like adapt effortlessly. Those that have bad performances are phased out without any noise or fanfare and new ones come in to take their place as if nothing happened. And I think that's that lack of chaos and lack of flurry that happens around a club that's consistently successful, consistently knows how to play to win, can adapt and obviously has an incredible amount of quality, which goes not just, you know, across the team, but at the boardroom level, at the hierarchy and, and how they've organized themselves. So, um, yeah, I think when you say it's impervious, uh, that's exactly it. I think they're just immune to little personnel changes. Balance tends to be consistent, like nothing tends to throw them off, which is uh, pretty fearsome, if you ask me, as an opposition team. Well, and as we know that there's a it's a six match losing streak for a city in all competitions and we've not been able to maintain a clean sheet so unfortunately he will not be bob most likely in this match it will be a robert sanchez performance uh in between the sticks we also do compared to their injuries uh, we are definitely more in crisis here than and they are they do have key players missing like Kevin De Bruyne, John Stones with a recent injury pickup. We did see Erling Holland come off at least uh, during their 6-1 drubbing of Bournemouth. Um I mean, concerns, do you feel like they are going to be lacking due to some of those injuries because even with some of those injuries already, they've been able to get the job done in their previous matches. Well, I mean, he featured midweek in the Champions League and he ended up scoring. So uh, no concerns whatsoever when it comes to Erling Haaland. He will be raring to go. Um, he's just pulled off the Didier Drogba celebration as well. So hopefully, you know, Poch takes a picture of that and puts it on the dressing room saying, this is what it has come to. Hopefully it'll get us fired up. But yeah, it's um, a guy who's the only person in the Premier League to be in double digits for goals. Um, is going to be definitely a, a big, big test for for our defense. We've been, I would say, hot and cold throughout the season. We've we've done very well at times, and at times we've just looked extremely porous. Hopefully, we we'll bring it all together and uh, stop the Premier League's best hitman and uh, bring home a point or hopefully the points. Wow. I think that is aspirational in a lot of ways to say that we would bring home the point or potentially get even more out of it. I don't know if we'll get lucky enough to play against the nine man side twice in a week, but uh, who knows that that definitely could happen. We're going to take a really quick first break. And then when we're back, we're going to talk about how city have been playing. If you haven't been watching their games, you haven't been watching the champions league because you basically been on strike because Chelsea aren't involved. You're missing out in some good matches, but we'll get you caught up to how City have been playing right after this. All right, Sam, so as we take a look at it, best attack, best defense, best almost everything, lots of fun formations, experimentation that Pep Guardiola kind of brings out. There's 
you never know who's going to be the most dangerous individual on the pitch on any given day because if one person's having a bad day, they've got someone within the same stratosphere of player comp who can stand up and be accounted, you know, be accounted for and deliver on the day. So where are we at with how City are and maybe what's the evolution look like? you know, from last season to this season on how they're playing. Yeah, it's interesting because there was this entire debate about what happened to Manchester City post Erling Haaland. Like, have they become uh, less of a unit? Are they trying to be a little more a root one? You know, go back to front, try to feed their main outlet and, and, and their goal getter. So I think that debate has raged on for quite some time, but you can't really argue if, if somebody like him is getting you the kind of goals that he is um, that he is an issue per se. I think they've evolved definitely since, uh, let's say, Raheem Sterling was at Manchester City. You know, when they relied a lot on uh, of being a well-oiled machine where they had these automations, these almost choreographed dance movements that they pulled off at will. It was such breathtaking muscle memory. They just pulled it off at such lightning speed and with great execution that got them you know, into triple figures for goals in Premier League campaigns, which is incredible. So uh, I think they've moved on from that to become slightly more individual focused. Um, they have the superiority, I would say, 1v1 against almost every team they come up against because they have just so many uh, established world-class talents or they have young players on that trajectory or have been converted to elite talents by their manager. So... Um, this is a team that is extremely dangerous with the ball. Also, in Erling Haaland, you have somebody who's very, very dangerous without it. So you've got a bit of both, you know, and, and that's what makes a team extremely devastating from, from a general standpoint. So as we get into some of the additional specifics, you know, I know that there were lots of different formations in the way that, you know, he's played over the recently, particularly with how he was playing with fullbacks last season and center backs and his defense was very interesting, very fluid. Um, how have you seen some of the like the individual players and, and who should we be looking out for when it comes to, you know, any matchups that are going to potentially start to appear on the pitch. Yeah, interestingly, I mean, we've heard a lot of criticism for Poch from Chelsea fans saying, why is he playing Colville at left back? But uh, Pep's been doing it for slightly longer to a point where he's played almost four, even five centre-backs at one point in the same lineup. And I think the stress has now moved on to figuring out how to plug your weaknesses. You've got enough on-ball quality. So what he's done now is introduce centre-backs in roles where they're comfortable in possession. So John Stones, who's a centre-back, who's also played at right-back um, before his days at Everton, um, he was moved into a central midfield position. So he was able to display kind of characteristics that we never thought he would be able to. But what that also brought along with Rodri was this security in chaotic moments. He was able to recover the ball for his midfield partner. Rodri himself is an elite recovery machine. And when you've got a rest defense made out of defenders who can anticipate where the ball is going to go, they just win the ball, second balls, and then keep recycling it over and over again. So they just keep the ball in your half. They tire you out. They go from side to side. They poke, they pry, they exhaust you, they frustrate you to the point where you break. You know, you take an elastic band and you stretch it a hundred times, it will snap. And that's the philosophy there. And I think that's what City do very, very well. They've also now 
gone, uh, I would say, a slightly up a gear in terms of making sure that they're utilizing as much of their attacking talent as possible. So I think what what in particular makes them extremely hard to play against is that you know they've got the quality to play through the middle. They can easily play through your press. They can go within your lines with one-touch passes. You know, they've also brought in players specifically for that purpose. For example, Mateo Kovacic, we know that he didn't really have his best couple of seasons before he left. But one thing he does extremely well is that he's comfortable uh, under pressure. He's probably one of the best press evasion artists in the world. And you've got players who are able to just ease away from pressure, heavy pressure, and they're able to put the ball into spaces and there are other players who are able to receive in those pockets and play from back to front. So you do know that they like to go center. So what do you do? How do you react? You essentially react by trying to go very narrow and you try to pluck the gaps in the center. And City say, okay, no problem. They give the ball back to, to Kyle Walker or they give it to Josco Guardiola and the ball goes directly, diagonally to Jeremy Doku, who's now got incredible amount of space to run 1v1 against a fullback. So now, if you're trying to figure out where you concede space, it's extremely difficult in Manchester City. With Spurs, I think there was an attempt for Poch to say, okay, I'm going to give space to Brendan Johnson. I'm going to give sp- uh, you know space to Dan Kulusevsky on the other wing. As long as they don't play through the center and get it to Son, uh, who's able to run in behind the centre-backs, uh, it's going to be problematic. Against Manchester City, it's not going to be that straightforward. I do know for a fact that Doku, whichever flank he plays, is going to be a massive, massive nuisance. Even if it is against Reese James, who's, you know, fortunately got an incredible CV in terms of stopping the best, you know, white men on the planet. He's done it to Rafael Leao. He's done it to Vinicius Jr. Hopefully he can add it, uh, add another list in, in Jeremy Doku. But that's basically the, the problem that I think we are going to face. Where do you stop space? How do you stop? space you know how do you stop these moments of superiority that you give to one of their players because they're so good across the pitch the quality is consistent and i think that's something that we'll have to be very very careful about um but like you mentioned they're also tactically very fluid um but what what works for them now is they've got three center backs and they've got this box midfield so four players so you've got your two double pivots and you've got two attacking midfielders who essentially stay very close um, to each other and also to Erling Haaland. So you've got effectively a chance to make a central overload against even a 4-3-3. In a three-man midfield, you've got one spare man to play with. And that's something that gives them an incredible amount of flexibility in the center. They've also got players to, to utilize even the smallest spaces in those spaces. And the fact that you have a triangle with Erling Haaland and the two guys behind him um, just gives you so many ways to to try and attack the last line. Haaland, thanks to his gravity, thanks to just the fear he breathes into people, usually distracts multiple defenders. So you have third man runs, you have runs in behind, off the ball runs behind into spaces. Um, this nice relationship between Erling Haaland and Julian Alvarez has been incredible to see. I mean, he's effectively playing, I would say, the De Bruyne role, where he's not just playing as a support striker, but he's also creating chances every time Erling Haaland drops and he pulls the defender out. Alvarez has got the intelligence to run into those spaces and try to exploit it as much as possible. The goal against Fulham, 
I think it was where he waited for Erling to pull two players out and then came inside to to shoot from the same position that Haaland had vacated. So these little interchanges, this dynamic that is there in the forward line, it's incredible to see. So it's a well-drilled side, very fluid, um, good in all parts of the zone. The moment you give them a 1v1 anywhere across the pitch, there's a good chance that they will make you pay. Well, again, that goes back to the memification and why we might be in trouble in this match. I know that the... They're an airily dominant team as well. They don't allow many goals from set pieces. So we definitely are going to find ourselves struggling to create the opportunity. But I do think there are a few ways that teams have been able to find a result. Again, they're not perfect in the season. Wolves was able to find a win. Arsenal was able to find a win. Uh, you'd argue that we should beat Arsenal as well. So by the transit of property, could we be better than Manchester City? Maybe not, but on the day, you never know what happens. What are the ways or the approaches, I think, and this kind of maybe speaks to Poch's problems to solve just a touch and we kind of lean into that, but are there ways or systems that we can, or styles, choices that we can make on how to either sucker City in to absorb, 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 and try to play on the counter? Or is it more about the uh, you know, suicidal high line, big Ange type of tactic to try to really create some chaos and you know, gamble with, uh, with all the house money? Yeah, I think there are two approaches that, that one can take here. Um, we talked about that in our Spurs preview as well, in terms of how do you go with Jackson, how do you go without Jackson? And um, I think... The approach you take here is sort of like polar opposites. Um, these are not my words. I, I wish I could tell you who exactly said it, but I was watching a video and then somebody was talking about this exact same approach. And they said, you know, the first way you can you can try to win against Manchester City is that you effectively get a compact block, extremely compact, maybe like a 5-4-1. And at the earliest sort of sign of City trying to turn it up, you basically retreat and and try to eliminate space in behind. You just try to kill it. And then you just pray to God that they don't have their shooting boots on. And you also pray that the one chance you get during the game goes in. And then that's exactly what Wolves did, like you mentioned. Uh, they had 32% of the ball in that game. And they sat back in a 5-2-3 or, or a 5-4-1 in a deep block. And this effectively tried to kill all space in behind as well as in front of um, their defense, so it just on the edge of the box, and and City struggled to create anything. Uh, I think they had only, I don't think they created a single big chance in that game, to be honest. And their expected goals for the game was under one, which is extremely rare for Manchester City. So um, <clears throat> Wolves basically sat like that for long spells, and then the moment they had a chance, they kept going to Pedro Neto to try and carry it out of trouble. Um, and basically give them an outlet out wide. Adama Traore has done that for them in the past, but Neto was playing like a possessed player. He was he was very, very good in the evening. They had three shots on the day and they scored with two. So that's the kind of fortune you need. Um, has to be, you know, our performance against Barcelona, the the year we won it in, in you know, the first time. So I think those two performances, like smash and grab, be compact, put Didier Drogba at right back because we lost. Um, John Terry to a red card, that kind of performance you could go for. But I suspect that, you know, uh, the fans we've got now wouldn't probably be happy with that kind of performance, I guess. 
So the second approach is you effectively do what Arsenal try to do. You try to be extremely proactive. You be aggressive in in preventing City from trying to overload the center. So um, they went with a 4-3-3, but it was interesting because they tried to do a little bit of what we tried to do against Arsenal. So they tried to give their centre-backs a little bit of space to say, okay, do what you have to do with the ball. But what we're going to do is we're going to mark your two players in the second line. So they're going to mark the two guys over there, the double pivot. And then you've got Declan Rice and Jorginho, your two central midfielders marking the two eights in behind. So you effectively are trying to block off all central access with man marking. So that's what they they were trying to do. and it was tough because City kept moving players around. At times, Foden would drop um, and then Bernardo Silva would drop in between the centre-backs and, and you would figure like, why is he doing that? So somebody had to follow Silva. Uh, sometimes Rico Lewis would move out and he would go on at, you know, on the right flank and then Declan Rice had to tell somebody, you know, tell Trossard that you have to press this guy. So there was a lot of communicating. There was a lot of improvising on the fly, which um, Arsenal are doing very well to their credit. I think out of possession after a long, long time, they've they've sort of mastered how to be very stable without the ball and try to prevent any kind of passing or penetration through there. So they did that very well for long spells. They effectively negated City. So if we have to do something like that, then I think the replication has to be try to prevent them from going central. And effectively, when the switch happens to somebody like a Doku or a Grealish or a Foden, then you try to get your fullbacks out as quick as possible and, and hopefully get your centre-backs to double-team. So, you know, you're not leaving uh, Jeremy Doku if he starts on the left against Rich James alone. You want Desasi to to effectively be right behind and then try to cut that out as soon as possible. So that's going to be one thing that we'll we'll have to be very, very careful about. And and effectively, if you try to win the ball back in the middle third, this goes for both approaches. Um, you let City come towards you with the possession. You win the ball back in the attacking in the middle third, and then you effectively try to, you know, burst forward with transitions. I think that's the best way to hurt them uh, either way. So those principles will will definitely be common to both approaches. It's just, I think the second one will be, like you said, more acceptable to the Chelsea supporter and maybe even to Poch, I think he doesn't want to do what he did at Spurs anymore. Uh, a lot of the times his approach in big games was to tell the opposition, you know, do what you have to do. The Dortmund game comes to mind where he effectively said, we're going to be compact. We're going to sit back in a back five, in a in a back four and, and try to kill space, invite you very deep. And then we're going to hit you on the break. And that's exactly what they did. But uh, I don't know if that's what he goes for now. It's shown that it has worked and we have the quality to make it happen. It's just um, what does what message does that send in terms of uh, the style that we want to play in or uh, that approach against the bigger opponents or the more, um, I would say, opponents that are slightly higher in their um, development than, than we are. So you want you know, our, our team to be brave. You want them to take risks. You want them to play on the front foot. Then I think Pochettino has to go for the second approach, which again comes with its risks. So that's something that has to be decided. It's a, it, it effectively ends up being a, I guess a, a approval of maybe the, the way that the players believe about themselves. Like, do they believe that they're 
at good or on the level or on the day can take it to city. And if you're telling them to go compact, maybe does that show or feel to the players that there's not a belief that they can get it done without stifling the chances. And it feels very much like the under Tuchel, under Sari, that you know those were some of the, you know, under Antonio Conte even at times, that those are the way that we wanted to play because we were trying to suffer in the moment. And even though Pochettino talked about a need to suffer, I think that suffering was more about like the development cycle of suffering, not necessarily about being so passive that you are seeding so much of the the pitch, so much of the opportunity to the other side. And while you think you highlighted earlier, our defense has been good. It is not the best in a league like City. And it has also been good at times and bad at times. And gambling on your defense is just as, you know, much of a gamble as gambling on your ability to win the ball, convert an opportunity, get further forward and score against this city side as well. I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. I would ask you if you saw the Arsenal performance, you know, it wasn't really something in terms of let's go at it on the front foot, like let's press like demons and win the ball back. It, it wasn't all that. I I talked about this on the TFU podcast with John. When we were sort of starting off earlier in the season, our pressing intensity was, I, I would say, one of the best the league has ever seen. It, it, I don't know if the metrics have changed in terms of how PPDA is measured, but when I was looking at it, we were more aggressive uh, more frequent with our presses than leads were under Marcelo Bielsa. And, and it was very evident in the first part of the season. Maybe that's why it drove teams back to the point where they got terrified of coming out saying, what if we try to play? So let's just eliminate space because what are they going to do? And in in those games, in, in the Fulham and Burnley games, we just effectively countered that strategy by saying we're not going to press so much. So we went from having a PPD of 6 point something, 6.4, 6.5, to 10. And then against Arsenal, we went to 31. So we allowed 31 passes between Arsenal's players before we decided to act. Now, is this courage? Do you quantify this as being pragmatic? Or do you, you sort of like look at it as being passive and not doing anything? I think it was intelligent. I think Poch realized that this is an Arsenal team that can cleave through you at will. They've got players to play through you. They've got extremely quick players on on you know each flank who are able to take 1v1s. So he effectively moved the striker out and he said, okay, let's put an extra midfielder in there. Let's block everything in the center. We know that Gabriel and Saliba are not going to be the kind of centre-backs that, say, Manchester City have. You know, They're not like Kyle Walker who will carry the ball forward from centre-back or even, say, Josco Guardiola who will try to pick passes between lines. They there's no level of progression that compares to both. So, you know, I, I think that that approach worked and it was a very pragmatic approach from Pochettino. So even if he does go for a mixed approach where he says, okay, let's press when it's convenient, but let's sit back and make sure that we don't make mistakes. Let's try to pounce on their mistakes. Let's see if they try to play through the center. And the moment to do that, let's spring up central pressing traps, win the ball, and then try to counter because that's where City are weak. You know, I think transitions every team suffers but especially Manchester City when you've got two wingbacks and both their wingbacks like in a 3-2-4-1 or one wingback at least is Jeremy Doku or Phil Foden so they've got the confidence to play an attacker there to include five attackers up front so if you can exploit those moments that moments of trying to force the issue 
<clears throat> I think that's when something happens. So um, in my eyes, it's a good approach. I think it can work. But after Nicholas Jackson's hat trick, do you drop him? I don't think so. I think you you give him the chance to express himself and, and go for it even more. So uh, that's the difference in approach. I, I mean, either one works for me. Uh, Chelsea DNA, like you said, has been suffering. But it's football's changed. And I don't think you want to suffer sitting back. You want to suffer intelligently, but also give it back when the opportunity arises. Well, I think the the thing that Pochettino also talked about heading into the Arsenal, you know, heading into the Arsenal match, heading into the Spurs match recently, is that we don't actually struggle against the we you know against getting up as players necessarily or as the team for a match against Spurs, for a match against Arsenal, for a match against City. It's been the Brentfords, the Fulhams, other teams that the energy and the intensity doesn't always match maybe the moment. And we're talking about, I think, two things. One, what's the overarching strategy for how he's going to want the game to play out, but also in the phases of the game, first 15 minutes, second 15 minutes, end of the first half, how will Chelsea move? How will Chelsea react? What's going on when the first subs come out, um, the first 15 minutes after halftime? And I think those are things where Pochettino might say, hey, for the first 15 minutes, like, just hold on. Like, let's, we're going to be, you know, playing them. It's going to be their opportunity to put a stamp on it. They're going to go very hard to make it difficult from the first 15. And then from there, like, maybe do we get more aggressive? Do we push further out? Do we try to make it, you know, more tense experience for them after they've, you know, added a little bit more taken off? you know, some of the maximum energy output that they're going to be able to kind of commit to this match. And so I think, you know, it's not just one match, one strategy, but the way that the strategy evolves throughout the match too will be very interesting. And I think very telling for how much does Pochettino believe in this side and how much of it, it comes down to a system for, for Chelsea or the individual one-on-one matchups that we talked about, like what can Reese James do against potentially Doku? What can the center-back pairing combo do against Erling Holland and Alvarez? Like, what if Foden plays as well? Like, you know, how is whomever plays at left-back uh, or right-back, whomever is going to potentially, you know, have on, you know, have a difficult moment on their hands? Like, they're... There's a lot about those individual matchups, too, I want to talk about. And we'll get in that in just a second after this break. So, Sam, I was just talking about some of the individual matchups. So, you know, Pochettino is going to have, you know, again, uh, more players available in this match, which is a positive thing. Players coming back from injury. We know we've uh, we've been teased with the uh, Nkunku images, the videos, seeming like he's getting back to fitness, but we know that the club seems to be taking it very cautiously considering that he will be such a massive addition to the team when he is fully fit and returns. Um, But it's likely we don't see him until after the international break. So with that in mind, what are some of the decisions you feel like Pochettino has? I think you teased one out and do you drop Nico Jackson when he just scored three goals? And I feel like the answer is going to be no, but you know, people might think that that's a good idea. No, I wouldn't drop Jackson. For multiple reasons, I think that um, City's wide centre-backs can be vulnerable. They aren't as dominant as they were last season. Um, Nathan Ake was fantastic last season. I think he was one of the best. He's had a couple of like iffy moments, I would say. like City in general have looked a little off sometimes. 
more often than usual, which is, uh, I mean, losing two games in a month in the space of a month is extremely uncommon for them. So they have had struggles. And I would say that if you've got somebody like a Jackson who can create a little bit of uncertainty uh, for the last line, I think you tend to go with it. And plus he's, he's got his hat trick. He now sort of will have a little more confidence in terms of taking shots. So you try to play him as much as possible. Like I said, uh, the advantage is also having very good ball carriers. So I, I think introducing Mikhailo Mudrik in, you know, maybe the half last half an hour uh, could be a very interesting tactic. Last season, uh, 17 goals um, were conceded by City in the last 15 minutes, last 30 minutes, sorry, between the 60 and, and the 90 minute marks. And, and they conceded 16 in the first hour. So, Half of their goals basically conceded last season came in the last half an hour. And and this season, it's pretty much similar. I think like the trend is um, showing that they're, I mean, I think three goals in the first half and they've got uh, five, I think, in the last half an hour. So still early on. But if you can, you know, maybe add a little bit of pace, a little bit of uncertainty when when they do appear to be a little vulnerable, then especially the game's level and City are trying to push for a result because uh, they don't have the you know luxury of saying, okay, let's climb up the table. They're already up there. They need to preserve their place and then try to build the lead so they can't afford to drop any points. So I think when you come to that juncture, then you add a little bit of chaos if it's level mm-hmm. and then see where the game goes to there. So uh, I think the matchups, interesting matchups will 100% be in central midfield. I think how we cope against the four-man central midfield, the box midfield that City come up with, how Enzo copes in particular um, will be a key, key indicator for me. I think he's not been at his best recently. He also had a little bit of a knock last game, so I don't know how fit he is. I don't know how he's going to do. But uh, if he pulls off a performance like he did on the first day of the season, my word, I mean, you know, That'll be extremely keen getting us where we want to be. But um, out of possession, ensuring that City's extremely fluid midfield does not get the better of him. Sure. I think that's something that I'm definitely keeping an eye on. And the other one would be pretty obvious. I think Jeremy Doku is somebody that we should definitely, definitely keep an eye on. Um, he's going to be, I think, maybe the defining factor. If you can keep him quiet, like we talked about this in the Milan previews, I think one of the first previews we did. If If you can keep Leao quiet, if you can keep Vinicius quiet, if you can keep this guy quiet, then we then we maybe have half the battle in the attacking third one. You know, he's going to be the unpredictability factor, the X factor. And and more often than Haaland, I think he's going to be the one who's going to try and disrupt us. So that's going to be the matchup. So speaking of that matchup, I think that we saw against Spurs that Cobalt got pulled off after grabbing the caution and it was a move to Kukurea to give Chelsea a little bit more forward thrust. Again, different considerations in that game, considering what was going on, what was happening. Would you think, or how do you think Pochettino is going to look at which left back he is going to consider putting out there? And I think this kind of leads a little into our conversation about what we think the starting lineup is, but it feels like he's Cowell is kind of still the guy, but he's shown some he's shown some willingness to bet on Mark Kukurea in big moments. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I will tend to put my money on the fact that he will go with Colville. Um, 
But again, it's it's sort of that factor that you know Arsenal are going with the back four, but Sinchenko is going to be often in midfield to create, you know, issues. So we're definitely going to have two men, like two centre-backs against Erling Haaland, maybe even three if Colville sort of stays behind. So you have three centre-backs then taking care of your centre-forward. So what happens to the two guys who are just playing in between lines? You know, then you're putting a lot of pressure on Caicedo. You're putting a lot of pressure on Enzo to, to ensure that those guys don't get free. Um, Foden tends to drift inside a little bit from from that right wing back position, so he's also going to be somebody to watch. So I think if you put Kukureya in there, then he has shown a couple of times that he's okay moving in inside, and then he sort of like provides a little bit of security in in those positions. But I would, on the basis of just the fact that Colville has been first choice, and he's arguably our best bet against Phil Foden if he starts on the right hand side. Um, I would, I would definitely start him there. But it'll be interesting to see what we do against Erling Haaland, and what Erling Haaland decides to do against our backline. I think he will try to target the Sassi on the ground. I think that's something that maybe Pep is pointing out to him, saying if it's Silva, if it's you know, if it's the Sassi, try to bring them out and try to run at them. I think that's going to be the standing instruction for him. But um, yeah, that's again a matchup that I would say would be would be crucial in the air. I don't think it should be too much of an issue. But uh, yeah, on the ground, hundred percent. That's something that I would keep a, a very very keen eye on. So maybe let's start to pencil in then what the starting lineup looks like. I don't think there's a decision maybe at this point with regarding keepers. So I think we would probably both agree that it's going to be Sanchez between the sticks. We know that Reese James is, you know, as long as he's healthy is starting. I think the center back pairing choice is interesting. We, you know, we've seen uh, Benoit Bede Shields be able to get minutes now. We know that, you know, Disasi and, uh, you know, has also featured recently. Thiago Silva is available as an option. And I think we just talked about Colwell and Kukurea. It sounds like we're on the Levi Colwell is likely going to start at left back, but then who does that make your center back pairing? Yeah, I think it will again be tried and tested Silva and the Sassi. I think the two uh, who started and then reached James on the right-hand side. Um, ideally, I would have wanted to figure out if there was a way we could get Padia Shield somewhere in the middle. I don't know if you want to drop Silva or if you want to drop the Sassi. I don't think you can drop the Sassi because it would mean moving Silva to right center back as the wide center back and you don't want him charging out and trying to press people because that's not something that he's, um, you know, comfortable doing any longer. Plus, you're putting a lot of physical strain on him. So um, I don't think there's any other option but to drop the Sasi if that happens. So, uh, sorry, I, so I have to drop Silva if that happens, if you want to get Benoit Badia-Shil in. But again, we don't know if he's fit. Uh, we don't know how... If it's even going to be, say, Colville and the Sasi or Colville and Silva and then Kukure on the left-hand side, which... I doubt, but in case it happens, Pochettino throws a curveball. Who knows? But um, yeah, I think that would be my back four. And the rest of the team basically remains the same. I think uh, putting Mudrik against Arsenal worked for us. A little bit of bad blood. Hopefully Sterling has the same results from the left wing. Yeah, and you get the benefit of the... Raheem Sterling wants to have a good game against his former club. Cole Palmer will want to have a good game against his former club, particularly with how good the start to his Chelsea career has gone. 
and Nico Jackson, can he take advantage of the opportunities that get created for him in this game? Again, I know people point to the fact that, you know, it was a quote, ugly hat trick, unquote, but it's still a hat trick and it's still in the Premier League. And I don't care how many people I was up against. It had to be timed right. And it had to make it, he had to have the confidence to run a goal. And so, yeah, I don't think that there are a lot of tough decisions, even with players coming back fit for Pochettino. I think those who might ask for Badia Shield to be put in, I just don't think we've seen enough minutes from him, game minutes, to say, "Hey, go up, go go return to playing against Erling Holland," because there is a there is a difference. There is a difference between Blackburn Rovers and Manchester City. Um, a couple, uh, you know, just a few league positions across multiple leagues. That's that. That's it. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like basically coming to your first karate class and going up against the black belt. So. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be for him a little bit of a customization to to coming back to you know the the top pace, and you don't want to go against the guys who set that pace. So I think he will be eased in, but it would definitely have maybe uh, been a nice option to to rely on him. I hope that we will be able to do so in the coming weeks. Um, I, I haven't been extremely satisfied with with this Hasi. So hopefully, like, you know, we might get Fofana back hopefully sometime soon in, in January, maybe, and uh, try to show up a little bit of the errors that have gone out uh, at the back. So I think that's going to be priority for sure. But uh, yeah, then I think one one point I, for, I forgot to mention, I think most people would be maybe slightly surprised by this, but we've actually created more big chances than Manchester City in the Premier League. So wow. Um, yeah, so that's that's quite interesting. In fact, City have four teams above them that have you know sort of like created more chances than them. So, um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if we can keep that going in this game. But uh, I, it's it's not it's not for us to say that you know we're going to be pushed aside very easily. Hopefully, hopefully we can just come there to compete, do it intelligently like we've done against Arsenal. And if that happens, if you've done and maintain what we've done against the big size. We've done Liverpool, we've done Arsenal. Um, I think I think we can go out there and, and definitely cause issues. You know, we didn't talk about the one player um, who definitely has the opportunity to create the most chaos in this match, and I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment to mention him. Anthony Taylor, after a quick demotion, a quick return and promotion to one of the biggest fixtures of the weekend, getting an opportunity to be the lead official against, uh, I would say against Chelsea, given his track rest, uh, history and record against us in terms of big games. But I'm sure Manchester City are not happy as well, given how poor his performances have been both in the Premier League and in the championship this season with the uh, yeah, a lot of questions around his ability. And actually, I, I mean, I kind of would take Michael Oliver again. <laughs> uh over getting anthony taylor uh for this match but that is a absolute wild card of what could happen in this game knowing that uh taylor does like to uh savor the moment so to speak he's also from manchester so that that's also pretty interesting but uh at this point i think uh, i'm not surprised you know we got two red cards in our favor and that we got like uh two goals disallowed so i think you know the PGMOL saw that and said, you know, what's happening here? We got it. We got to get, we got to get this corrected. <laughs> this is not right. This is, this is like out of the ordinary. Good decisions against Chelsea. Oh my Lord, this cannot be. So I think they've just gone on and, and, uh, 
release the Kraken against us. So uh, hopefully we won't give him much joy. I think uh, it's asking too much against Anthony Taylor, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I think the best game is when the referee doesn't have to make any significant calls. Sure. So hopefully that that's the case and it's a clean fight. Well, I mean, there there have never been big calls in a Manchester City versus Chelsea match, so uh, I'm sure it will go exactly as you've indicated there. But as we round out this episode, it's a little bit of prediction time, so we kind of gave you what we thought the starting lineup might look like, but is there a score prediction that you have in mind? A result that you're thinking of, Sam? A tough one. Um, yeah, I, I want to be my optimistic self, so I, I will go with a 1-1. Um, I think it will be a tight game. I think it will be far tighter than a lot of us. I wouldn't be, even be surprised at the 0-0, but um, maybe a 1-1. Uh, considering we've made some gaffes and some senior moments, I think that will happen. But uh, yeah, low-scoring game and pretty intense is my prediction. What about you? Yeah, I want to be optimistic. I do tend to vibe that way, and we, we tend to agree a lot on that. I just feel as if we are still in our development phase our development cycle and city are not necessarily they are a basically finished article that just occasionally gets retooled and i feel like they're going to beat us on the day i feel like the trend's going to continue it, it will take a little bit of the excitement out uh that we had earlier in the week against spurs but when it's against manchester city there's just an assumption that I feel like at least right now that we will not be able to get the result done. And I think two, one, I, I would like to say, I think we can score against them to your point very late in the match, you know, somewhere in that like 70th to 90th minute type of goal. But I do think they have enough firepower, particularly the addition of, of Doku, just how good he's looked that I'm not sure that we're as settled yet as we need to be to get the result that we're looking for. But maybe later in the season, we, we, we pick up the other half of it. Like I, I would like to say that we, we maybe split points with them this season and that would be an improvement year over year. No, but definitely, I think to give you a little bit of optimism, obviously you read the, the newsletter and dispatch that I sort of pen every week, but Absolutely. I did mention 72.7%. I mean, that's the percentage of goals Spurs had scored in the second half before our game. And it was the same percentage that we had conceded in the second half. And we ended up basically scoring for three goals in the second half against Spurs and not allowing a single one. And uh, Spurs also had like a 10-day gap to prepare for our game. Uh, and then basically, you know, we became maybe slightly less prepped than we needed to have. And we ended up like beating them there. So, you know, we have defied the odds in our last game. and. Um, irrespective of how the table looks, I think the form book looks a lot cleaner than it did um, a while back. So considering we are in the middle of, I would say, a very tough run of fixtures, I am optimistic. You know, I obviously the feeling of dread is always there because you know Pep Guardiola, like he plays against Bournemouth, he slaps them 9-0 and then he says the space between the centre-backs so good. I'm like, you know, he tends to rub it in a little bit. So you, you don't know what he's cooking up, but uh, hopefully... Hopefully, we are well prepared. I think I, I trust in Poch. He's got a good record. He knows how to play these teams. Um, it, Pep actually complimented his Espanol team um, when he was in Spain, you know, and and said something along the lines of his teams look for you. And uh, I think that's exactly what Poch will be trying to do. He will be looking to exploit any weaknesses and hopefully 
bring home the bacon. Well, let's hope that he is bringing home all the all the pork, all the bacon, any type of meat that he is able to collect in this fixture, and we return with three points. And that would be a great way to head into uh, you know another uh, bit of a, a break for Chelsea, which is you know uh, kind of quite frequent at this point within uh, the season. So we are heading into a men's international break after this fixture, but don't worry, we still got plenty of content heading your way. So that is going to do it for this episode. Hopefully. Chelsea do the business, Pochettino and team get it done, but that is not always guaranteed. But what is guaranteed is we'll be back here after the result to give you our thoughts on that. So thank you again, Sam. Thank you to the wonderful listeners for supporting us. Uh, five Star Views, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Go subscribe on YouTube. Join us on Patreon and Discord. But until next time, that is going to do it for us. So you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. I was basically like watching the Liverpool game with one eye and like playing Witcher with the other. Oh, you're playing The Witcher right now? Yes, I got a new laptop, which uh, luckily sort of like uh, supports games that were out of access for me for like seven years because the last laptop I had was like very, very old. So now I'm okay. starting to play the game I missed out on. So I just played Witcher 3. Oh so my gosh. Good. How much have you played so far? Um, I'm I'm basically just starting off. So I would say like about, uh, I mean, I, I get to play about an hour, hour and a half a day max. Okay, well, look, there's only about 300 more hours of content to go. So you're, you bounce that between what you do in terms of scouting. I mean, you'll be able to get that done, you know, with the oh. way that you manufacture time. Uh, it's, oh, you know, 300 hours for me is probably like 100 hours for you, the way that you maximize. <laughs> I'm trying to finish off as much as I can until like um, something like GTA 6 comes out or like Elder Scrolls is the one I've been waiting for for a decade, but not going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. So, no, you're in a good place with with Witcher Three. Um, we'll have to, we'll have to. I'll ask <laughs> Jake to sneak this in as a little bit of end content to, uh, <laughs> like a, a post stinger buzz. Uh, stay tuned after the credits to hear Sam's thoughts on uh, Witcher Three or what game he's playing recently. <laughs> Seriously, I've just been. I, I've I finished Dishonored Two because that was something. So I love the I love Dishonored One when I played it, and I was. Um, really wanted to play two and three for the longest time, but I didn't get to, so I, I managed to do that. Love the game, so nice. I don't know if you've played it. I know you were a gaming fanatic before. Oh, I'm still a gaming fanatic. I yeah. just, oh my God. well, I beat the main storyline in Starfield, which was a pretty average oh, wow. game, unfortunately. Yeah, I just think <laughs> that there's a lot of good stuff in there, but it's also hampered by the fact that it feels like it was last gen and a lot of the processes and systems like inventory management was the same as it's been done for uh -huh. years. And it's also like, come on, can we, can we just agree that like encumbrance shouldn't be something that you consider when you are a, you know flying through space and you have massive ships and you have, you know, your gravity free environments. Like let's just, let's, let's be more realistic with like what that actually yeah. means. But so that I hope, this is the, like, Bethesda is the only multi-billion dollar corporation headed by a Todd that fails to deliver on expectations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, well, well uh, Jake's going to clip this in. So if you're listening to this, you're, you stayed after the credits and that's pretty cool. But uh, you got some Marvel thoughts. Post sequence, is it? People yeah, sitting yeah. down to listen to like spicy stuff, like, oh my god, he plays Witcher 3, he has a deadlift yeah. PR of 40, not bad. 
<laughs> well, they'll, they'll hear your thoughts about Witcher 3 on this one. They'll hear maybe future thoughts on a next preview episode about uh, Alan Wake 2 when I start playing that next. Is, uh, but we'll... Uh, but we're going to end this because we're done. 